My guest this week is Ben Williams, founder of Sten10. Ben is a business psychologist. He's an assessment guru. He calls himself an assessment geek. He spent years understanding in, in the context of business psychology, how assessments can be used effectively to make sure that employers and organizations are bringing the right talent with the right behavioral profile. As experts in talent, recruiters or anyone who's recruiting needs to understand this and to give ourselves the best chance of bringing the right talent, of understanding the dynamics of teamwork. And uh, it's a bit of a minefield, so Ben's gonna cut through it and help us understand what matters, what we should be looking for, what's out there. Really interesting guy, true expert in his space, and I really enjoyed the chat. Very warm welcome to the Cheerium podcast. My guest today is Ben Williams, CEO and fan of Sten10. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Hello, Gordon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you are what I would describe as an assessment guru, but I think your sort of official uh, qualification or title is occupational business psychologist. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Basically, um, like many psychologists, we went down the potential path of um the clinical route or the forensic psychology route but then actually we found a real interest in looking at predominantly more normal people in inverted commas within the workplace so analyzing personality motivated drivers uh, in a work context yeah no love it and your 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 journey that's taken you to this place where you've got this business that uh, focuses purely on assessments and we'll get into a little bit of of, of the different types of assessments uh uh in, in a moment but your journey to get them I mean, you worked for recruiters um so, yeah i worked for test publishers specifically so i worked for companies like shl some of the large business psychology consultancy firms and i worked for a recruitment advertising firm as the head of occupational psychology there for a few years too so i think i picked up a bit of everything from these different firms i mean from from the very rolls royce best practice approach of some of my early firms to some of the more i guess pragmatic solutions that i needed when i was working for smaller more entrepreneurial firms so um i like to think i've, I've got a nice rounded perspective on like everything from best practice to we need it done tomorrow and on a shoestring budget love it and you and you um and, and you were chair of the association of business psychologists for a number of years so you've um um you're right at the heart of the heart of the industry um i the, the reason i was really keen to have this chat is you know you, you came and did some work with our members and it was absolutely fascinating to get under the skin of what potentially we could and should be doing from an assessment point of view and i guess the backdrop for me is years ago i went to america and i studied over a number of weeks and world-class organizations and, and took away loads of tips about how to build the ultimate organization where you get different levels of engagement performance etc cetera, etc cetera. And one of the big things, and I thought I was quite good at it at the time, and I thought that I got it, was this concept about actually the best organisations in the world just put 50% more effort into the assessment of people who are going to join their team. And every single one of the organisations I, I went to visit and, and, and spent time with in, in construction, retail, the airline industry, hospital, public sector, they all just put in this extra bit of effort in into this into the assessment piece. So um, it's always felt, you know, w w what is the this is critical, but for anyone in the in the game of recruitment, and obviously we'll come onto the team aspect of it. How do we get this right? What can we do? What could we do? And I think I've done most of the tests over the years. I'm a little bit of an obsessive uh, tester. 
to see which ones which which ones are working but but how would how would you sort of um with your expertise how have you seen that evolve over the years the way that employers are assessing people you and obviously you know we can we're not talking about assessment for uh, language or, or literacy or, or or that but the behavioral assessment how has that evolved over the years yeah i think um you, you pick up on like so many good points there and um uh, and, I, and i think i mean perhaps the point started is what you what you mentioned there around what are we actually assessing um, so what I tend to specialise in are behavioural competencies. So um, what are the behaviours that lead to success in a role? That, even that itself, before we even get on to what kind of psychometric tests are new, um, has been shifting over the years. So I presented last week at the ABP conference on the topic of hybrid working competencies. So whilst teamwork in the past might have looked like this, how does it look like when you're trying to do it over Zooms or, or um, trying to do it over a Slack channel? Um, Likewise, leadership from a distance. How do you go about uh, recognising when a team member is suffering from potential burnout when you only speak to them on your predetermined Zoom call um, once or twice a week? So I think what you're looking for is the absolute bedrock of any good assessment process. Um, Then the way in which you get to that um, insight for any particular individual is really varied. you mentioned there about um, doing things 10% better. And there is, um, uh, I guess, the principle of marginal gains here. Just by introducing a bit more structure to your interview, you're going to get a disproportionate increase as opposed to a quick chat over a coffee in a, in a pret. Um, but then from there, you can take it into the world of personality questionnaires, motivation questionnaires, and, and even some of the new developments around game-based assessment, where you get people to play a computer game, they don't even realise essentially what you're testing, but through the way in which they've played the game, you can infer certain things. So if they really try and try and try again at a particularly tough level in the game, then what these companies show is that that relates to the personality trait of persistence. So you can say, okay, well, that's, rather than asking them, are you persistent in a personality questionnaire, you get them to play something and see whether they show that behaviour. So, yeah, there's some really interesting things there. I think that's really interesting what you're saying about the different types of working. You know, we've shifted from office to hybrid to remote in some, fully remote in some cases. Um, but I hadn't really thought about, okay, well, let's start assessing people for their suitability for for remote working and all, and all the challenges that, you know, if I think about our members and as business leaders, we've had about how do we make sure that we're the engagement, the performance, the well-being uh, of our teams based more remotely is as good as it needs to be. But that suitability assessment is, is a really interesting one. Yeah, and it's it was really interesting. Last, last week's session, we ran it as a bit of a, uh, a forum as well. So I asked the group of business psychologists i don't know what the collective term for a group of business psychologists is i don't know neuroses, <laughs> neuroses of psychologists or something but um but they were one of the things that came out was around initiative being far more important than it used to be so you can't rely upon those uh, water cooler moments to catch up with your team see how they're doing so you have to be planful about it or uh managing upwards if you're um if you need clearer guidance from your manager then you don't just wait to bump into them or go to their desk then you actually need to be a bit proactive yourself if you're feeling directionless so I, I think something's not really talked about at the moment but I'm, I'm seeing that really come through from last week it was, it was proactivity initiative taking is really important in that hybrid world yeah so, so diff, di- different so, uh, so-called soft skills are becoming more important in in today's working 
environment. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and the other interesting debate that, that that a lot of people have is around the um what is different about the next generation in the workplace. And I was speaking to a um somebody else on the podcast recently about resilience and is the next generation of people coming into the workforce less resilient? Are they just as resilient? But it's maybe people from the previous previous generations like me who are thinking you're not quite as resilient as we were or are. Um so I suppose at the heart of it, assessment helps you understand individuals and teams. And if you understand people, then you can do something with that. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the whole topic of resilience is a really a hot one in the world of business psychology at the moment. And there's all sorts of debate over whether it is a generational issue or, um, as as we all know, we've all been through the pandemic crisis together and, and perhaps the stage in their lives at which they faced it was more impactful upon their um, resilience levels. But also there's um, a bit of pushback as well because a lot of companies are implementing resilience initiatives. So go on this training course, be more resilient. When actually a lot of the time it's perhaps the company itself that needs to look at its working practices to say actually, is that A, reasonable, um, and B, is that going to be tolerated by the workforce of today as well? So just because um, your I, Gordon, uh, sacrifice ourselves um, on like 12 hour working days and things back in the day. Um, are you still going to attract the best talent if you insist upon that nowadays? Uh, mm. and, and where's where's that balance of power lying? So yeah, it's a really interesting one. Do you, do you all the years that you've been um, think uh, working on the on the on the assessment side of things? Is it is it become becoming more common practice to use assessments of different types? Um, because again, our 15 years ago when I was, uh, you know, I was an HRD and I was assessing people all over the place. I, I tended to use formal assessments for senior hires in particular and for, further down that, uh, you know, other people who are middle management or, or, or in non-management roles, I, I might tend to come up with some creative free tests that I'd, I'd somehow, uh, that probably weren't validated at all, but um, j- just to, just to keep on, on assessing, but has it become more commonplace? Is it, is it, is it, is it, more popular and more widely used than it was before? I would say that the vast majority of my work is in the graduate recruitment space because the return on investment is very easily demonstrable if you're doing it over thousands and thousands of people. So if you Mm. say, actually, we've reduced 6,000 applicants down to 100 that need to come to assessment centre via these tests, and you don't need to interview each of them or you don't need to review hundreds of CVs, you can use some psychometrics. So I'd say they are as popular as they as they ever were um i would say that certain tests have come and fallen in in favor over the years so a few years back situational judgment tests uh were that were over half the work that we did where you place people in a hypothetical scenario and you say how would you address this and how wouldn't you address it um and, th- and they're really nice ways of giving people some insight into the job as well as assessing the individual so i think especially in this era of uh, keeping candidates at a bit of an arm's length, having something like a situational judgment test where they can see what their working environment is going to be like when they join and get a better feel for it, helps them to make an informed decision about whether to join or not. So I think um, I think they're they're kind of overdue a bit of a, a bit of a comeback. Um, things like um, uh, international middle manager development centres, I guess, is the other bulk of my work. So where you've got people from all across the globe who um, are ready perhaps to be considered for a leader, senior leadership position, but are you ready yet? What's your potential like? How big is the gap? Um, and 
yeah and, and again obviously the big move with a lot of those has been to move from face-to-face -face events to virtual but i think we are seeing a, the tide turning a little bit now with people really seeing the benefits of networking at these events especially for development events for leaders so mm. reverting back to face-to-face -face where possible um and then there's um there's a bit of a similar thread in recruitment but a lot of the in-house uh, recruiters are pushing back against a return to face-to-face -face because of the cost and logistics involved in putting on these events but also from a social mobility perspective because um uh, the, the cost of um, getting a ticket to come to your offices in London or wherever it is for a graduate um, and or maybe taking a day off work or whatever it might be are going to be easier for some people to fulfill than others in a way that virtual assessment centers even the playing field so it, it, it's a bit of a time of different polls pulling usually the in-house managers the managers themselves want to make face-to-face -face. the recruiters are saying let's stick with virtual and presumably when when COVID kicked in you you started developing some some virtual assessments uh yeah i mean we had a bit of a decision to make because we we don't have an it solution we partner with a company called evolve for our psychometric tests but we didn't have a ready-to-go assessment center platform um we thought about developing our own but it's to do it properly, it takes a long time. So in the end, we found a partner called uh, TopScore, who we do a lot of our work through, um, or use a combination of, this is a kind of more towards the pragmatic end of the spectrum, things like uh, Dropbox, um, Google Docs, to be able to share information in advance. And uh, obviously those kind, of, those kind of ways of doing it are less secure and they're less slick, but they can get the job done still. So yes, it was a it was a certainly a period of flux for about six months where the taps were turned off face to face overnight, and we had to say, how on earth are we going to do this? So drop drop it entirely, or or move online. One of the gaps quite often that employers have when they're looking to uh, bring people in, um, new employees, is 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 in terms of knowing what I'm looking for in the first place. So quite often I find you know, having worked with a multitude of organizations in multitude of sectors over the years, is that when you say, right, help, help me understand exactly what you're looking for, the job spec and the profile of the person I'm looking for, including the behavioral profile of the person I'm looking for, it just isn't quite as clear as it, as it should be. And therefore the risk of getting the recruitment wrong is, is going to be bigger because if I don't know what I'm looking for, then I'm taking more of a chance when, when I'm trying to assess why, with the work that you do with organisations, why is that? Because the principle is really simple. You've got to know what you're looking for in order to find the proper fit and, and the proper match. And yet, if we don't know what we're looking for, not not in terms of experience and the easy to measure stuff, such as knowledge, expertise, et cetera, et cetera, and skills in some case. But if you if you don't know what you're looking for, you're just going to increase the risk. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, a lot of the time, I think it comes from um, the job descriptions or person specifications were written when the job started or, or maybe were refreshed as part of a grand overhaul. But often the, the lead time to fill a position is shorter than that which it would take to do a full on job analysis. So people say, well, actually, look, we've got to fill this position ideally in the next um, few weeks. Um, we, but there's no time to go back out and do the job analysis. So this is where having something like a, a behavioural competency model in place that says, well, look, the roles of this level, everyone needs to be at level two on teamwork or strategic thinking, whatever it is. So you don't need to go back to the drawing board for every new job you recruit for. 
Um, I mean, coming up with a competency model, it, it, it's quite an undertaking, um, but it's, um, again, I mean, we, we would typically probably spend two to three weeks um, interviewing relevant people, um, reviewing existing documents, maybe observing people, some people do the job, um, and then using that to create the framework. Uh, but once that's done, it's done, and, and it can be in place for, for many years um, with minimal tweaking required. And, and you have, I mean, not only do you have a competency model that you can use for recruitment, but you have behavioral indicators. You have, this is what good looks like. This is what poor looks like, which you can use for performance management discussions, development, um, onboarding. Um, so there's all sorts you can do once you've got that model in place. It's just convincing people to invest that bit of time up front. And, and obviously, well, some industries are a little bit more open to it than others as well. So I particularly find... Um, more creative roles can resist being pinned down to a structured competency model that says this is what good looks like. Uh, trying to say to a um, uh, like their creative artist what the competency of creativity looks like to them is far more difficult than trying to say that to I don't know maybe a um, um, I don't know, maybe a graduate on a program at a bank because you, you want them to suggest new ideas uh, maybe mm. um, look at some customer insights and say we could do this and that that's great creativity but but something very left field is far harder to define but for the most part i'd say 90 percent of jobs it's pretty straightforward to outline the behavioral requirements yeah I, as you were talking there you made me think of I was, I was doing some work years ago with a um a gaming company out online gaming company out in gibraltar and they uh they needed a new it director and uh, it was one of my many recruitment mistakes because the one thing we didn't assess for, brilliant experience, absolute guru in the gaming industry, but one of the things we didn't assess for was his open-mindedness. So he was very fixed in terms of the technologies and the um, and, and the sort of um, specifics of the type of software and, and development approach he would take. And there wasn't at all open-minded. It led to a massive clash, massive dysfunctional um, IT department because he had one way of doing things. And even though he had a proven record, he wouldn't consider other options, which um, put, a, put him in a, in a minority. And there must be cases of cases like that all over the place where we have made the wrong decision because we haven't, A, worked out what we're looking for and B, assessed appropriately. I think there's also um, what you described there. there's there's certain immediate stereotypes you would have. I mean, someone working in the gaming industry, you'd think probably quite open to change and new things coming on. They're working at a pretty cutting edge industry. Um, but this is where business psychology is often called the science of common sense, because a lot of what we do as psychologists is prove things that you kind of know already, but sometimes we contradict what is common knowledge. So say, for example, um, when recruiting nurses, you would have thought on personality traits like how caring you are, you'd need to be off the charts, like really high caring. And actually, when you investigate it, you find those types of people tend to take home the traumatic stories from their patients and take it to heart and they end up leaving the profession. It's actually those who are more towards the middle on caring or even more towards the left and can stay more detached from what they're doing that end up having the motivational fit to be able to stay there. And, um, and we've done a lot of that with companies like crunching the data to help dispel um, assumptions. We work with an oil and gas company on their graduate recruitment program. Um, and there was a really strong view that certain degree subjects are the ones we should be sourcing from because they're the ones that are going to do best. Um, 
and it was found there wasn't. I think it was basically it was on a, a commodity trader's role, and the expectation was that those with an economic degree would be the best. And actually, it turned out those with more of a natural sciences type degree were the ones that ended up going on to do best. Um, so, so yes, it's, it's trying to challenge um, preconceptions that are entirely reasonable, but through data that you can throw up some interesting surprises like that too. To, to, uh, I mean, a couple of challenges, again, thinking about the um, people using assessments. Challenge number one is cost, because there's a cost of these things. Some are more expensive than the others. And uh, and, the, and the other one is, which one do I use? Because there's a lot of them out there. And a lot of them seem to be able to pop. You know, I've, I've walked around exhibitions over the years, and you, you see multitude of uh, um, um, assessments that are in place. And some of them, when you dig deep, they've just... <laughs> They just look very sexy, but they've not been validated in any way, shape or form. How and it is challenging when you're thinking, right, exactly what do I need to assess and which is the best best tool? Out there. Have you got any any sort of tips if you're not uh, if you don't have your, your expertise? How do you go yeah. about choosing the right one? Yeah, I think there's always um, there's always so the, on the cost question. I mean, that is obviously a key consideration um, from. In, in large, often the prices come down with the more people you're assessing. So you can get to as little as two or three pounds per person when you're assessing large numbers on ability tests. But then for some leadership assessment psychometrics, you could be looking at a couple of hundred pounds per person. So it's it's a vast range. Um, I know on um, our webinar session that we ran that, um, I don't know if a recording's available of that, but I ran through a bit of a shopping list for a good test. So. I think the key thing you want to ask of any publisher is where did the theory come from from this? So what, what's it rooted in? Is it just their gut feeling about what makes a good person or is there something solid behind it? Then there are, um, you can impress your friends and uh, wow those at dinner parties by um, revealing your knowledge of psychometric properties of tests that you need to get. So um, there's something called reliability, which is how consistent the questionnaire or test is at measuring something you ask what's your reliability if they can't give you an answer then i'd probably say walk away if they can give you an answer then you're looking at about 0.6 or above for personality questionnaires 0.7 for ability tests and that basically says how accurate is it one would be perfectly consistent naught would be wildly inconsistent in measuring someone so 0.6 or above ish then validity you ask what validity studies have you done if they say we've not done any then again you walk away if they've done some then you could say how strong relationships did you find and what you're looking for is about 0.3 or above and again a one would mean perfect prediction a zero would mean you might as well draw a name out of a hat a 0.3 says you're moving above random chance to a significant mm. degree there um, but then there's other things you want to ask about. You, you'd probably want to say, has this test been looked at for adverse impact on any on certain groups, so certain ethnic groups, um, gender, age? Again, if they haven't looked into that, then again, I'd, I'd be wary. Um, what kind of comparison groups? So when someone scores on a test, you don't just know that they scored a 12 out of 15. You need to know, is a 12 out of 15 any good? Is this is this really um, really good score or a really poor one? So you want some comparison groups that you would compare that score against and you want those to be appropriate to what you're recruiting for. So if they've only got graduate recruitment norms and you're looking for executive level um, recruitment, then that's probably not probably not great. Um, and then and then you've got things like um, what reports are available. Um, so 
you, you'd like a profile chart, maybe a bit of narrative, but are there development tips? Are there interview questions? Are there are there color codings against um, competencies, for example? Um, and and then and then obviously you'd also want to maybe check the IT um, aspects of it. So tell us a little bit about the tech platform. Um, can you adjust it for people with disabilities, like more time or different font sizes? Um, can it easily in interface with other other pieces of software like applicant tracking systems or HR systems? Is it, is it stable? Has it been tested at volume before? Or is it the risk there that it will fall over as soon as the volume gets high? So I mean, that, that's a selection of things you can ask, <laughs> grill the poor salesperson um, with, with those questions. But um, that, that would give you um, a really good foundation that the test you're about to choose to use has, has been properly developed and is going to give you the results that you want. Yeah, love it, love it. And, and I know one of the things you do at Sten 10 is you actually um, develop bespoke assessments, which which I actually love the idea of having a bespoke assessment. I tried something a few years ago, which was a brilliant idea, but very badly executed by me. Um, I thought I'd do it. We were working quite closely with Thomas International, and we decided I decided to assess all the best uh, recruitment consultants who were performing, outperforming everybody else. And, uh, and and looked at their sort of disc profile with a, what, what what learnings were there from assessing and profiling all these top performing billers and uh, it, was, it was quite an extensive exercise and taught me absolutely nothing because there was a such a range of such a range of uh, of different profiles but uh I'm sure if I'd known you then I might have done it a little bit differently a little bit cleverly and a little bit more scientifically. But uh, there, there, there is a, there is a principle, and I'd love to do it again just to understand some of the traits, for example, of the recruitment yeah. consultants who particularly build the relationships or deliver the performance consistently that their organisations are looking for. I think I think in that kind of study, you run the risk of um, what us psychometric nerds would call regression towards the mean so you've got such a broad range that you're going to come out with people coming out your ideal profile is going to come out down the middle a lot of the time and you're going to say ah oh, that hasn't given us much insight at all so I, I think having a look at um you probably splitting out those groups into def definitive high performance and definitive lower performers and looking at the size of differences there but also probably weaving in some qualitative job analysis too and uh, and interviewing them and, and finding out where those differences are would be uh, would would be really good there but um yeah i think it's um ben, it's, it's, just, yeah. just listen just listening you tell me how i should have done it made me realize <laughs> what i didn't God. do a i didn't call it a study and uh, uh, I'll do that next time. I'll call it study, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, much better. I'll, I'll I'll give you a ring because that was uh, I definitely wasn't. I was doing the the, the quick version, um, <laughs> which doesn't really work. Anyway, that was brilliant. Uh, and just, just just lastly and briefly, Ben, you you hang out with lots of organisations. What's sort of particularly inspiring you at the moment? Well, you know, um, you you mentioned that I might have this question in advance, and I was thinking, well, who is inspiring me at the moment? I, I guess I've got an anti-inspiration at the moment. Um, there's a grand tradition in psychology um, in the 1930s, 1940s of doing very unethical experiments. So Milgram with the electric shocks and Zimbardo with putting people in prisons and seeing how people are treated. You just can't do nowadays. Now, what I see Elon Musk doing at Twitter, so firing half the workforce without any notice and then backtracking from it, um, insisting that everyone comes to the office or they're fired. Um, I looked at some meeting notes recently where he announced quite casually that Twitter, his vision for the future is that it's going to become a payment platform. And you could just see the confusion 
confusion from the transcripts that a payment platform, like how's mm-hmm. that going to work? So almost like what Elon Musk is doing within Twitter at the moment is the kind of thing that as a psychologist, we could never advocate. We could never say, look, do it completely against all wisdom and, and all good practice and let's see what happens. But he's doing it. So it would be fascinating to see what the outcome is and whether um, whether the negative effects that would be predicted from that kind of behavior will occur or not. So, yeah, that, that's the person that I'm watching yeah, so most closely at the moment. So you're looking that objectively through your through your uh, assessment nerd eyes and saying <laughs> yeah. that's a really interesting approach. No, well, it's either going to be a complete disaster or, or a bit of genius. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I agree with you. It just, just just goes against every perceived wisdom from a leadership point of view that I know. Yeah. Um, Ben, that's been lovely. Listen, if, if people want to re- reach out to you and find a little bit more how they can develop their own assessments or really work with employers or the employers who are listening about how they can uh, assess their people better, where, where's the best place to reach you? Um, have a look at our website, sten10.com. That's S-T-E-N-1-0.com. That name comes from, uh, again, psychometric nerd speak for the top 2% of the population, which is how we, we assess people. Um, and or drop me a note, Ben at Sten10.com. Always happy to chat about all things people assessment related. Brilliant. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. It's it's such an interesting area, this. And uh, I think we're all learning a little bit. Um, have a great rest of the day and we'll uh, we'll see you again soon. Brilliant. Thank you, Gordon. Bye.